we were very fortunate growing up that we didn't have a lot of money, but uh, you know, our family was super tight. And one of the things my dad always said to us, it's been like our family saying is, you know, uh, we'll never get rich doing this, but everyday life is bar none. Mm. You know, we would be sitting at the sandbar, you know, for every Friday night we'd be having, you know, at our pontoon boat cooking up chicken or, you know, catching lobster and grilling it up out there. And, and just, I can't remember how many times through my childhood, my dad would just look around with a smile and be like, can you guys believe this is real life? Like mm. how many people get to see this, you know, and same thing when we're fishing. I think, I think about it every day. Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Turtle Box Audio, Traeger Grills, Costa Sunglasses, and Orvis Fly Fishing. To many, the Florida Keys is a bucket list fishing destination. But to Brandon Sear, it's his home, the place he grew up, surrounded by the waters that are filled with memories of chasing billfish, bonefish, and permit. In this podcast, Brandon and I sit down and discuss his childhood and the bond that he has with his father and how that shaped his own home. Brandon also shares with us a ton of insight on chasing permit and how he scouts and reads the water. Brandon has also earned a reputation being one of the top up-and-coming guides in South Florida, and through our time together, it's easy to see why. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. Beep, 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 beep. No one else knew anything anyway, and you're just might, definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's the old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? That's look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Brandon, thanks so much for hanging out and joining us on the podcast. You're definitely one of those guys who I've had people point me in your direction for a while now. I'm just excited to be able to sit down with you and and make this happen. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. I'm super stoked to be able to come on here and uh, share my story. Yeah, especially after uh, tournament season here. (laughs) You had a little bit of a run recently. Oh, man. Uh, you know, I love tournaments, but uh, it takes quite the toll mentally and physically on you. <laughs> and uh, um, as much as I love them and I'm addicted to it, um, I'm happy that it's over and have a little break and enjoy the family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really excited to talk about tournaments and permit fishing and family and all of that. But before we dive into those different topics, I would just love to hear about your story and how you got into fishing and really kind of how your family helped shape you into the guide that you are today. Absolutely, man. So, uh, you know, I was super, super lucky. I grew up in a family of uh, fishing guides. You know, my father was a fishing guide, you know, his entire life, my uncles, my 
my great uncles. And before that, my great grandfather, they were commercial fishermen down here. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of history in the fishing world and community mm. in the Keys. And, uh, you know, to be able to grow up around these guys and watch the evolution of the fishing going from commercial to charters to now, you know, we're the first generation of fly fishermen. Mm. So uh, it's been a really fun experience. And, uh, you know, I feel unbelievably blessed to have the opportunities that I have. Yeah, tell me some about your childhood growing up in the Keys, because a lot of people who I've met who guide in the Keys, they're not from there, you know, necessarily. So I'd love just to hear about what that was like for you. Yeah, man. You know, it was uh, super incredible. We, uh, you know, live on a two by four mile island. So if you don't have access to the, the water, there's hardly anything to do. Um <laughs> I was lucky enough that, you know, my dad had us on the water as much as possible our entire lives. And, uh, you know, we were so lucky that my dad had, uh, gave us access to the water pretty much our entire lives, you know, from my earliest memories of, uh, on his offshore boat, he used to keep these little cushions set up so that I would basically be laying between his feet on the offshore boat while he was trolling with clients and stuff like that. And, uh, Oh, with clients. Oh yeah. Yeah. But we, we went on the boat every, I mean, every weekend we were on the boat doing the charters with him and, Mm. you know, we had our little spot up on the, the top where we slept and hung out. And I mean, the experiences we got to have, like, you know, I got to grab my first leader on a Marlin when I was six. Wow. You know, caught my first billfish when I was six, first bonefish on fly when I was six. And, you know, that's most of the things that, at that time just seemed normal part of everyday life. I realize now later how lucky we really were, mm. um, you know, and having a kid to, I have two children. I have a six year old daughter and a nine month old son. My dad is every bit more of my hero today than, uh, I was when we were younger just cause I realized mm. how much he did for us and the amount of work that he put in, you know, he would go out fishing all day long. And then as soon as he got in, taking us back out, you know, and, uh, he used to pull me out of school. You know, if the sail fishing was like red hot or if we had a crazy tuna bite or a Wahoo bite, you know, he'd pull me out of school and have me change into some, uh, you know, some little Kmart or thrift store special and, (laughs) you know, get it all bloody and everything. And at the end of the day, have me change back into my school clothes and take a dial soap shower on the docks. And my mom didn't find out about it. (laughs) You know, uh, it was a, a pretty amazing childhood. I got to see a lot of things that, uh, you know, most people will never see in their lifetime. Wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping your mom knows about it now, right? You know, uh, <laughs> I don't know if she does, but she will shortly after this podcast is released. But, uh, yeah. You know, I mean, she always knew that we were we were always into something, you know, whether it was, I mean, I remember how many, I don't know how many times she got mad at me for, you know, just being a total kid when we'd get, out of school, you know, the first thing we do is go to my dad's boat and he was always flaying fish for the clients, you know, and I was that kid that loved dissecting, you know, mahi stomachs and seeing all the weird stuff they ate and, mm. you know, just playing, you know, and then trying to catch the marina tarpon. And so I was always covered in fish guts and smell and, <laughs> and, uh, she was me between me and my brother and my dad, I'm pretty sure she was used to it. Yeah. Yeah. She probably suspected something. Yeah. Moms know a lot more than they let on to. But, uh, For sure. Absolutely. Tell, 
tell me a little bit about that first bonefish on the fly because that that was a story that you had told me previously i thought was such a great story about how you first kind of got into the fly fishing side of things with that bonefish yeah absolutely you know so i was uh, a really impatient kid uh when i was growing up i just loved to constantly be fishing it didn't matter what i was fishing for as long as i got the quick bite and uh one thing that kind of got me into fly fishing was when we were younger you know i was probably six seven years old we would walk around in the mangroves you know at our little sandbars snipes point and marvin key Mm. and there's all which is basically a little baby lemon shark nursery so there'd be all these little you know 18 to 20 inch you know lemon sharks and i would throw these little red cuda flies at them and catch them and to me that was like the coolest thing in the world and uh, it was easter sunday when i was six or seven i can't remember about six or seven but uh I'll never forget walking over there do my normal thing to go catch them you know looking around and i kept seeing these little fish in groups of like two or three and kept throwing my cuda fly at it and they didn't want anything to do with it and i was pissed because you know normally back there is either small kudas or sharks and so i go back to the boat all upset and i'm like man dad like there's these fish over there they won't eat my fly and he's like all right you know i'll go over there with you and comes back with me and he you know i'm like look there they are and he's like oh my god those are bonefish <laughs> and i didn't even know what a bonefish was at that point and i was like oh okay cool like how, how do we catch it and uh luckily there happened to be another flats guy that was hanging out with us and uh he gave me a little pink crazy charlie Mm. and uh we ended up catching like six of them and uh i'll never forget (laughs) the the difference i mean because like i had never hooked anything on fly rod you know besides little baby lemon sharks or little itty bitty you know 12 inch barracudas and that was the first fish that ever took me onto the reel and got me into the backing and i remember like it getting in the backing and i was like what do i do do i run after it you know just freaking out my dad's just laughing he's like no man just enjoy it let them pull mm. and uh you know it's something that i'll remember till the day that i die and uh i'm really really excited to hopefully do the same thing with my children which my daughter actually is already she uh got her first bonefish at five years old oh wow. um yeah it wasn't on fly it was on a spinning rod uh you know, got her sight casting in on it and uh yeah we have had an absolute blast Wow. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, and, you know, you're talking about the phrase just enjoy it kind of made me think of something that I think is can be a challenge for people who are trying to raise kids like we want our kids to to love fishing and love hunting and love the things that we love, because we know that if they do that, that'll be something we can enjoy with them the rest of our time together, you know. And a lot of kids get pushed away. Like for you, when you look back at those early years of being a kid in the Keys, you know, you just could have easily, you know, your story could have been, I grew up down there and am sick of it. How did you continue to enjoy it? Were there things that your dad did or, or people around you did to help you with that? Absolutely. You know, I think, uh, you know, there's, a, there's so many different things, I think, that go into that. But, you know, because I do, I have other, you know, my dad being a fishing guide, all his friends were fishing guides. And, you know, I have plenty of friends that grew up and they don't fish. They don't mm-hmm. like fishing. They don't ever go fishing. You know, that's just not who they are. They, they had a distaste for it. And um, I think that really has to do with, one, your enthusiasm. You know, mm-hmm. my dad was my hero, like most kids, you know, and watching him get excited over the fish, you know, and just having fun with it made me want to do it. But, uh, you know, I think people get lost 
and like I've had this experience with my my kids, uh, my daughter, in fishing is that obviously first thing I want her to do is catch a permit or mm. catch a big bone fish, and the amount of patience that that takes, you know, kids get bored. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, the best way to get kids into fishing is just to do something just that they can just have a have a blast. Mm-hmm. You know, like my daughter's favorite thing in the world is catching snappers because we can throw a chum block in and she can like literally her favorite thing to do is she'll, she'll drop it in and go watch dad and she'll count the 30, close the bale and start reeling. She's got a snapper on. Mm. And so to her, that is like the coolest thing in the world. Like after she caught her bonefish, which is like a six pound fish, it was an absolute monster at five. Mm. And first words out of her mouth were, can we go catch snappers now? <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> you know, didn't even appreciate, you know, the, the accomplishment that she just got. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's all about fun. Tug is a drug. And, you know, I think gradually just an evolution of who we are as humans, we always want to do better and to try new challenges. And, you know, I think if you start off kids catching sharks and snappers, just stuff that's exciting, mm-hmm. that eventually as they grow into it and they grow older, they get tired of catching, you know, the snappers. They, then they want to catch the tarp and then they want to go, you know, it's just, it's the next steps. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's huge, you know. Um, and then, you know, for me, I grew up with my dad doing all the sailfish tournaments and stuff like that. And so uh, I've always been a competitive person my whole life. And watching him do the tournaments and then he was entering me in the tournaments, you know, and tournaments are so great for kids, especially children's tournaments. You know, I was catching, I remember, you know, being five to seven years old and catching like little 10 pound bonitas and winning these, you know, three and a half foot tall trophies, you know, and to me that was the coolest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just make it feel special for them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's something that's going to stick, you know, you, I can't tell you a single present that my parents bought for me between the age of five and 10 for Christmas or for my birthday. But I can remember every single fishing tournament. I remember Mm. my first bonefish, my first tarpon, my first permit. I mean, to the most exact detail in my mind, you know, those, those are the things that make memories that last your lifetime. And, uh, I think that's, that's huge. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because I think that, you know, we're, we live in a world that's just always trying to sell us things. And I, I think about your dad and, you know, the the toll that guiding takes. And, you know, you come home and it would have just been a lot easier just to plop on the couch and, you know, try to do what I think a lot of us do, which is, well, let me just try to buy a gift. You know, let me just it's easier just to buy a gift, especially in today's world of Amazon. I'll just buy buy something and give it to them and, you know, they'll know I love them. But you know, those harder things that you can't just click a button and buy, you know, taking, taking your kid out and spending time with them and doing that. that you're right. Uh, even as I think about my life, you know, those are the things that you look back on and you might not even realize, just like you talked about the bonefish. I think the first time my dad ever took me uh, duck hunting, I was 12 and we shot a big group of us up in Tennessee. We shot over 90 ducks in two days, huge group wow. of people, unbelievable duck hunting trip. I had a lot of fun, had no clue, spent the rest of my life to this day not having days like that you know <laughs> and you don't right. you don't you don't always like understand that but you appreciate I look back and the older I get the more I'm like wow my dad took time off from work he organized a trip he spent the money you know the kids they don't understand all that but you know you're right I mean what a what a great reminder too of you know those are the things that we really hold on to in our old age and um, it's neat full circle you know I know that you get a get a day here or there and just take your kids out take your family out and it's full circle yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and actually this year, 
I uh, vowed 2020 was my first year that I've taken, you know, I've always just been so focused on trying to make as much money as I could to buy a house and survive down, you know, price of living down here is so outrageous. And mm-hmm. this year I take every single Saturday off. It's our family day. You know, we're on mm-hmm. the boat every Saturday, you know, unless the weather dictates otherwise, but that's uh, basically what we're doing. And, and even then, honestly, I feel like it's not enough. So next year, starting in 2022, I'm no longer working weekends. Wow. That is purely just family time and uh, just get to enjoy every single minute that I can with them. Oh, that's great, man. That's that's exciting to hear about. Plus, it's always great to not have to be on the clock on the weekend when there's a lot of... <laughs> <laughs> a lot right. of boat traffic, but talk to me about, so for you, it's like, obviously you, you talked about the passion you had as a kid for you was being a guide, always the game plan. how did you get into guiding? Absolutely. You know, I've, I've always wanted to be a guide my entire life. I mean, I can remember a specific moment when I was four years old. I remember being on my dad's deep sea boat and we were heading out to go catch, take the clients wanted to, you know, basically take home a bunch of meat. So we were going to go do mahi fishing. And I was sitting in his lap, you know, uh, behind do, doing the throttles and everything. And he just we were looking at the compass and he said, just stick to 180 degrees south. He said, just keep going south. He's like, you know, we're going to go around the lobster buoy and stuff like that. And he's like, I'm going to go downstairs and use the bathroom real quick. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you know, like barely see over the front. <laughs> and so he like, you know, step, steps down and goes to the bathroom and I'm looking up and the clients looked up at me and they just were giving me, you know, double thumbs up, you know, and <laughs> that was back with the old, you know, Kodak camera, you know, the taking pictures and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and that ended up just being one of the most memorable days I've ever had. We caught a bunch of big dolphin and stuff like that. And I, if I remember correctly, these guys were from Columbus, Ohio mm. and, uh, they just kept talking to me all day long about how awesome my dad was. Mm. They were talking about, you know, this is the greatest trip we've ever done. We've always wanted to come fishing. You know, we're in love with this. We're coming back. And then, you know, I always thought my dad was great, you know, but then all of a sudden here I am, like I'm thinking about like my dad gets to go to work every day and literally make people's dreams come true. Mm. And, you know, and this is what he wanted to do. It's not like, you know, this isn't, something that he was being forced to do against his will. Like he chose his passion and was making a living at it. And to me, that just seemed like there was no other option in my mind of what work could possibly be. Hmm. And, uh, you know, my dad was, we were very fortunate growing up that we didn't have a lot of money, but, uh, you know, our family was super tight. And one of the things my dad always said to us, it's been like our family saying is, you know, uh, we'll never get rich doing this, but everyday life is bar none. Mm. You know, we would be sitting at the sandbar, you know, for every Friday night we'd be having, you know, a pontoon boat cooking up chicken or, you know, catching lobster and grilling it up out there. And, and just, I can't remember how many times through my childhood, my dad would just look around with a smile and be like, can you guys believe this is real life? Like mm. how many people get to see this, you know? And same thing when we're fishing. I think, I think about it every day, you know, like I, talk to my clients that I'm on the boat with and, you know, and they're talking about, you know, Oh, okay. I want the same week next year. And I just think about like how unreal that is to me that somebody has to wait an entire year to come experience what I get Mm. to do every single day of my life, Mm. you know? And, uh, I just feel unbelievably blessed and I'm, I don't ever plan on taking it for granted. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's great, man. I, I think that, uh, that's really well said. Um, I'd love, I, I, you know, I, 
we could, I, I'd love just to draw out tons and tons of stories from your childhood, but I know that there would be a riot if we didn't talk about permit together <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and your pursuit of, of that fish. I'd love just to, to hear just first and foremost, you know, when you're thinking about going out and guiding, whether it's permit, bonefish, tarpon, whatever, how do you, how do you think through your day and kind of shape your, your, your game plan, or maybe I should say game plans for the day? Well, you know, uh, typically every single day starts with looking at the forecast, even though, you know, as I say, 60% of the time it works every time. <laughs> um, you know, you never know what you're going to get with a weatherman. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I always look at the weather and then I'm pulling up tides. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say tides are probably my most important asset that I have, you know, because we have permit down here on any tide. They're going to be there, low water, high water. But uh, depending on where they're going to be, you know, the permit are territorial. So they get pushed around based on the tides. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, obviously there's more variables start to get involved, like wind direction, because if it's out of the north, you know, it could be colder. You know, so the fish, mm-hmm. might be, I might be having to go look for spots with warmer water when the tide starts coming in or less flow. Or even just if it's a hard south wind, you know, if it's blowing super hard out of the south, the entire south side's going to be blown out. You're not going to mm-hmm. see the bottom. So then I got to start figuring out where I'm going to go, whether from Key West up to Big Pine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, based off the tides. And so that all plays a factor in every single morning, you know, and every single day is different. So that's mm-hmm. it's kind of what I love about it. It's a never-ending chess game. Yeah, and when you're – let's just kind of – create a scenario here just to try to kind of draw, draw through a little bit and get a peek in the mindset. So, um, when, when you're kind of scouting an area or trying to figure out, you're kind of first approaching an area, like what are the things that are running through your mind? Like you talked about the significance of tides, like you're looking at water movement, like what are those puzzle pieces that you're trying to put together, put together for your client just to have the best opportunity on whether it's a bonefish or a permit or right. tarpon, whatever. So as I'm approaching a spot, you know, typically one of the first things that's going to go through my mind is looking at water depth, basically, because, you know, those fish are going to be following contour lines. You know, they're, I mean, there are some flats that they're out just in the middle of a basin, in the middle of nowhere. But, uh, you know, typically when I'm fishing that, it's because I know there's a large group of fish in that area. And, you know, typically those are a little bit, un- you know, a bit unmolested compared to other spots. But uh, for the most part, you know, I'm following contour lines on flats, whether, you know, the water's pushing in and they're trying to get up to feed mm-hmm. or, you know, the opposite and the water's falling out and they're basically going to be on that last little bit of rim of water as the mm-hmm. water's going out tailing. Um, so I think that's a huge part. But as a guide, something else that has to come into play in your mind is wind direction and sunlight. Mm-hmm. because I can give you shots all day long, but if it's, you know, straight into the sun or, you know, or if you're a right-handed caster and the wind's cranking 22 miles an hour over your right shoulder, you're not going to be able to make the cast. Mm-hmm. So those are things that all get accounted for as I'm approaching a flat. Like, okay, so this way, if I approach it like this, I'm able, I'm expecting the fish to be here. So this is where our best shot's going to be. So I'm going to keep the boat angled. And I normally talk my clients through that as we're approaching. So they know why we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, they know where to be looking because a lot of times, especially, you know, if, if the conditions are bad, you're not getting that glory, you know, 80, 90 foot shot. Here comes a fish, get ready. I'm spinning the boat. 
you know, down here we have a lot of wind. So there's a lot of times where it's like, oh shit, there he is, you know, 30 <laughs> feet, don't breathe, two halls, get it there, you know? Yeah. So um, I definitely think that all communication on the boat is one of the biggest uh, advantages for sure, for guide and for angler, because like a good a guy I had today, um, he's a phenomenal caster. Uh, last time he was down here, we caught three on fly, three permit on fly in one day. Wow. And uh, this time, uh, I don't know what happened. He just kind of fell apart with his communication. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd point a fish out to him. We had multiple good shots where we'd see the fish coming. I'd be like, okay, you got him. He's like, yep, I got him. Mm-hmm. And then the fish get a little bit closer, and I'd be like, hey, man, you know, do you, you, you got him? Like, start, start your cast. And he would just start his cast and then would end up throwing the fly 20 feet left or 20 feet right or 10 feet mm. past where the fish was. And after the fish would blow out, I'd be like, hey, man, like, where did you see the fish? And he's like, no. And I'm like, well, dude, you got to tell me. Like, if you lose them, like, let me know because I'm going to help guide you back in there. You know, have you point your rod and I'll tell you left, right. I'll try to pick out a spot in the bottom or something. But mm-hmm. uh, communication is huge. Uh, I mean, at, at the end of the day, this is a two-person sport. You know, that's not, I can't do it without the guy in the bow and the guy in the bow can't do it without me. So it, uh, it, it takes two to tango. Yeah. Yeah. And I was curious, just what are some common mistakes that end up happening out there? Like when you just look back, obviously sometimes, you know, me and you were talking about a, a situation earlier today and it was just like, that's just permit being permit. Okay. Well, but you know, when you look back at a situation, you're like, okay, we messed up here that, you know, whether it's you or the or the angler, what are some common mess ups or mistakes that people make when permit fishing? Um, you know, I would say one of the biggest mistakes that people make is just getting overly excited, you know, um, mm-hmm. which typically means they're either hooking the side of the boat, you know, when they see the fish, they're trying to cast as fast as they can instead of just, you know, nice and easy, you know, relaxed, um, you know, and, people just make bad casts uh, a lot and mm-hmm. permit are one of those fish that can really good and talented at seeing the fly line coming through the air. So extra false casts, I say, I, I watch blow out permit every single day. You know, the person is just, they're overthinking it mm-hmm. and they're trying to do one or two. Well, in most cases they're doing about their ninth false cast <laughs> and, you know, and the fish sees it and blows out and it's game mm-hmm. over. Um, another big thing is people let go of the fly line with their left hand, you know, they just shoot it and let go. So then what happens is, you know, they're trying to strip to come tight and, you know, or the flies sinking, the the fish is coming over to it and they've just, they have no chance. You know, they have no, they're not tight to it. The flies now on the bottom, the fishes, by the time they come tight to it, then the fish Mm. is inside of the fly, blows the fish out. There's just... There's a lot, there's a lot that can go wrong with permit fishing. You know, that's mm-hmm. kind of what makes it so exciting. Yeah. You had talked about like a client's not seeing them. I, I mean, that's one of the things that's challenging. So is there anything like any tips or things that you try to do to help the client spot the fish? I mean, any advice well, there? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is going to sound like an ad. Um, having a good pair of polarized sunglasses Mm-hmm. is absolutely huge, you know, and all these brands make, no matter what brand is your favorite, you know, they make different types of mm-hmm. lenses, you know, low light lenses, high, you know, amber lenses. Those are super, super important to what we do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I personally prefer Costa uh, mm-hmm. sunglasses myself, but uh, yeah, I think that's a huge part of it. And people get fixated when they're looking around; they're looking for the permit, the, the, the fish itself. Mm-hmm. You know, and ninety percent of the time, you're not seeing that. You know, it's either a mud puff or like. So kind of what I do is I just scan the area. And I'm looking for movement, whether mm-hmm. it, that's a mud puff all of a sudden popping up or the black tail crossing the grass or a sand spot or something. I would say 99% of the time, what makes me spot the fish first is movement mm-hmm. than actually seeing the fish in the water. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and I mean, I, I agree with the the sunglass thing, not an, not an ad, but just a reality. But when you're thinking through that, like, do you do you like glass or plastic? Uh, I'm definitely a glass guy, mainly okay. because um, I have never found a pair of polycarbonate lenses that don't scratch. Mm-hmm. And uh, your eyes, we're, I mean, we're literally sight fishing. That is mm-hmm. our entire sport is sight fishing. So if you can't see, you're just wasting your time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so I, I can't tell you. I remember getting a pair. I'm not going to name any brands, but I had a, somebody gave me a pair of sunglasses and got a scratch on them day two right across the middle of the lens and the next day i was out there looking around and all day long mm-hmm. it looked like i had a smudge on my lens and it drove me crazy where yeah. you know glass lenses don't scratch mm-hmm. they can break but it's pretty pretty hard to break them you gotta really mess up do you, do you like reflective uh i do so like my favorite uh is a sunrise silver mirror by Costa. so it's a yellow base um and so that brightens everything up we're mostly fishing over grass down here, whether it's for bonefish or for permit. And so being able to brighten that grass up really helps give you the contrast of the fish mm-hmm. moving over the top of it. Now, some people, their eyes are a little bit more sensitive and they have to wear, you know, they get headaches wearing the yellows all day long. I personally love it. Sometimes if it's super bright and sunny, you know, and it's like uh, we have the sun straight over us, I'll wear a green mirror with an amber base. Mm-hmm. And uh, those seem to work phenomenal too. But uh, I like, I'm a fan of bright. I, I want it bright. Yeah. And uh, you, you were talking about looking for the movement thing. I, I've noticed that, you know, just with myself, like, you know, just trying to scan and find that something different. I mean, it's kind of like that with, with hunting too, you know, like when you've spent time with really good hunters, you know, they just pick their eyes, just pick up on that movement. And I'd imagine that's one of the challenges is you're out there every day. So, you kind of get in tune to that. Like, let's Absolutely. Say that, let's say that you can't, how do you guide somebody in well? Cause we've all been in those circumstances too, where, you know, you're the person doesn't see it and it's like, okay, now we need to just guide this in. Do you have any right. tips on that? I mean, so one of the first things that I is when you talk as a guide, it needs to be calm, clear, and just, you know, get the point across quickly and simply. Mm-hmm. So, Typically, the first thing that I do, like I, and as soon as we get on the flat, you know, it's the first time client that I've ever fished, I'm, I give them the rundown. Mm-hmm. You know, I go up to the bow, I stand up on the bow with the rod, and I'm like, okay, so we're coming down here. I'm expecting to see these fish come down from this edge here, but just in case, you know, we don't know where we're going to see them. As soon as I see a fish, first thing I'm going to do is say two things. I'm going to say, I'm not even going to tell you if it's a bonefish or a permit. I'm just going to say 11 o'clock, 30 feet. Mm-hmm. And first thing that I want you to do is point the rod where you think 11 is, you know, and I tell them, okay, you know, straight off the bow is 12. Here's nine. Here's three. Mm-hmm. But you got to think about it is that I have to know where you're looking. So if I say 11, 
my 11, you might be looking at, you might think that's 10 or nine or who knows. Mm -hmm. But if I can have you point to where you're looking, I can say, okay, left, 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 or right, 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 right. Okay. Stop right there. Or go back to the left a little bit, you know, and I can Mm -hmm. do it in small increments. And typically like as soon as we get onto, onto a a white, you know, I'll pick out a sand spot or some kind of structure on the bottom and be like, okay, you see that spot right there. I'm going to say that's 30 feet. Do you agree with that? And they say, yes. Mm -hmm. I say, okay, you see that out there? I'm going to say that's 60 feet. Do you agree with that? And they say, yes. And so typically, um, for the most part, you know, I can do that. And that's why I'm saying the communication is so important because like Mm -hmm. if my angler is looking and they're going, I don't see it. I'm like, okay, well, what do you, what are you like, you know, can you see that black spot right there? And they go, yeah. I'm like, all right, look 10 feet shy of that. And then boom, you know, they pick Mm -hmm. it up and you are 100% right. We're talking about how your eyes adjust guys that fish me for five days, day one, they can't see shit. You know, by day five, they're tuned in really well because once yeah. you know what to look for, it helps a lot. You know, mm-hmm. and that's I think, like you said, it's with hunting, it's with anything else. And I think that uh, people who hunt naturally tend to pick up fly fishing and flats fishing pretty well mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, I can definitely tell the guys that get on the bow and think about you got to think, you know, next time you're casting at a permit, you got to think about that fish as if you're in uh, the woods trying to stalk a deer, mm. right? That deer's walking through the woods and you see him and you get your shot. You're not going to jerk your bow up as fast as you can, draw it back and let the arrow rip, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to assess the situation, be like, okay, this is where he's coming. I'm going to cut him off here. You stay as calm as you can. You know, Maybe once he gets behind the tree, you're going to draw back nice and slow, wait for your opening and let the arrow fly. So they're both wild animals in their natural habitat that are afraid of predators. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's both going to be the same thing. I think people make that mistake a lot. You know, like they get a permit that's, you know, 30 feet away, head down tail, and they just quickly as they can start flailing the rod back and forth, trying to get Mm -hmm. line out. And the fish, (laughs) the fish blows out and they're like, what did I do wrong? I'm like, you scared the shit out of it and me. I guess, (laughs) you know, like, you got to think about it. These are, you know, they're not just fish in a fish tank. These are wild animals that are terrified of us. Mm-hmm. So you want to do everything, you know, as relaxed and simply as you can. And, and honestly, like, you know, they're, they're smart. They're smarter than I am. You know, otherwise I would catch them a lot more. And every single day I'm learning from them. You know, I've, I've never mm-hmm. had a single day of guiding where I've gone out after permit and been like, oh, I got this. I get shocked and mind blown every single day. Could, could you just, you had kind of mentioned like, um, the mistake that, you know, I actually make this mistake a lot and I'm trying to work on it, but you know, just letting go of that hand, uh, when you're shooting, yeah. could you talk me through trying to read the fish a little bit better and just being set up to, cause that's, that's another part of like, obviously people go up oh, they're just being permit, being permit. Right. But like, obviously just like any fish, you, you want to learn how to read it. Give me some tips on that. So, I mean, it's really hard permit or one of those fish that none of them are the same. So it's really hard just to give a generic basic, okay, this is what you're looking for. But like typically to know with a permit on whether or not it's the fly, because permit, if, if the fly is there and it's presented correctly, you're going to get the fish's attention. So I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that are throwing at permit 
and the fish just keeps doing his thing, swimming nice and slow, you know, or just swims mm-hmm. off. And they're like, oh, man, we need to change flies. It's like, no, he never saw the fly or we spooked mm-hmm. him. or Because typically for a permit, if they see something that's, that looks like it's eating, they're going to come over and check it out. Now, if they eat it or not, is a whole different story. So typically for me, the body language on a permit, you know, if they f- they if they have interest in the fly and it gets in the correct spot, they're going to come over. Sometimes they'll just see the fly, but what you're looking for is a distinct body movement towards the fly. Whether it's a split second turning towards a fly and then hard turn hauling ass away or following it down to the bottom, looking at it, and then just lifting their head up and swimming off. You know, you're just looking for any kind of positive reaction in my mind. Like typically if I have a fish that follows a fly and goes down on it, then I'm going to say, okay, that was, that's the right fly. Let's keep using it. Cause mm-hmm. sometimes permit or just permit, but you got his attention enough for him to come follow it down. So it's probably going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, permit as you've had experience with, you know, if they don't like the fly, they're going to let you know, you know, a lot of times I'll have them swim over to the fly. And like, I, uh, was tying with some different materials and I use this type of, uh, glue, new, a new, uh, super glue on some of my flies and fish would see the fly come over behind it, get all, you know, hot and heavy on it. And as soon as they got behind the fly, I mean, it was like you threw the plague into the water just mm. absolutely freaked out and hauled as fast as I could off the flat. And I was like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. After two or three fish, I realized it. And, you know, I actually took one of the flies out of the box and I smelled it and it reeked, it reeked of super glue. Huh. Now, whether or not that was just me being crazy because I'm crazy about permit or if that's actually what had an effect on that fish, I stopped using the glue and did another fly on that day and caught one. Mm-hmm. So that was enough to sell me. Whether or not... Um, that, you know, that had an actual effect. I don't know. It could have just been the placebo effect that I had more confidence, which mm-hmm. I think is also huge in permit fishing because, uh, you know, sometimes you just need to do the right thing, you know, whether it's letting the fly drop and reading that fish's body language, like, okay, he needs it to be stripped or, you know, he wants it. I need to lead them further so they see it out more in time or mm-hmm. they're mudding. I need this thing to sink as fast as it can just right in their face. Um, each, each scenario is a little bit different. And the only thing that's really going to help you get better at it is trial and error with permit yeah. fishing, unfortunately. Because like I said, like I'm still learning every single day and I hope that I never stop. Just kind of continuing through just thinking about, you know, having putting all the puzzle pieces together. What are some tips that you might have for once you have a fish on and, and you've cleared, let's just say that you've cleared the line because we've all experienced every way in our capabilities of trying to mess up the, the clearing the line. But once you've cleared the line and the fish is on, how does it go well from there? Oh, just don't fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, you know, honestly, uh, for, for me, in my experiences, uh, permit, once they're hooked, they're, they're pretty much good. Mm-hmm. You know, um, just don't, you know, have a nice, good, like maybe two pounds of drag, um, which, you know, most people think is like six pounds of drag, but if you put a scale on your reel, it's really only like two pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just fight the fish properly. Always keep tension. Don't ever let it get slack. If you get slack, there's a high chance that you're going to lose them, but you know, they got nice, soft rubber lips. Um, 
they do stay stuck, but there are times that, you know, that's just part of permit fishing. Like we had just in this, I've had one tournament that we lost four fish that were on the reel. Wow. And in this last tournament that we just fished, uh, the IGFA in, uh, September, we, uh, lost a fourth fish that we hooked and, you know, just popped out. That's just how it goes sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for the most part, once they're hooked, you know, just always try to, I always try to keep tension. And, uh, as a boat driver, um, I always try to keep the boat behind the fish, mm-hmm. you know, cause typically it's really, really rare unless it's hooked just like on the very outside tip of his lips that the fish is going away from you, that it pulls the hook you know, you're keeping okay. that positive mm-hmm. tension in there. Almost every time that it comes out is when the fish is coming at you, mm-hmm. you know? So I, uh, like when we're doing like the record stuff or anything, I'm trying to keep the boat behind the fish and pull down the fish's back. Not only is it going to tire the fish out faster, mm-hmm. but I think it just kind of helps keep the hook in there as well. Yeah. And I, one of the things I was curious about, cause I'm not really a permit, uh, fisherman. Um, it's something I hope to just continue to do more and more and more of as I get older and more experience, more opportunity is like, help me understand too why it seems like people have so much luck with <laughs> with live bait and then it's a totally different thing when you're trying to sight fish it on the flats like help, what's kind of the dynamic there because you hear guys say man if i would have had a live crab like are do they just get really dumb when they see a live crab i mean what's the it's deal? insane it i uh, they turn into a jack Raval. i don't know <laughs> what happens to them they just lose their minds like i have my uh my first spin trip tomorrow that mm-hmm. I've had in a long time, and I am so excited to get some payback on these guys. <laughs> like uh, uh, Nick Labadee, my uh, tournament partner, mm-hmm. we uh, we were in you know some schools of fish, and you know we caught three in the IGFA and lost another. And mm-hmm. the day after the tournament, he was uh, filming a show with uh, uh, Tom Rowland, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking about it after the tournament. I'm like, dude you better just go fuck those things up. <laughs> like, cause you got just so Did mad he? at him. Oh yeah. He caught, he texted me at like nine Oh two and was like, Hey, just so you know, I went back, they were still there. We got a triple header. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, thank you. God, they were still so, there. What do you mean? They yeah. were still there. <laughs> you took yeah. them back to where we went. <laughs> oh no, we, we had talked about it cause we, I mean, it wasn't <laughs> a spot that, so basically what had happened for this tournament, we yeah. had a real uh, big wind change and it pushed a bunch of fish in, we think from the Gulf into these mm-hmm. basins and they weren't doing their normal things of being up on the flats there in these giant mm-hmm. schools of like, you know, 15 to 30 fish and six feet of water, which is really hard to get them to eat a fly anyways but god if you have a live crab it's just (laughs) they don't they don't stand a chance i mean it's just and honestly it's i think that uh if you've never caught a permit i think especially if you want to start getting good at fly uh i think it's actually really important to throw a couple crabs at them to watch how they behave Mm because it helps you understand why the flies uh that we use work and why what we're trying to replicate you know it's kind of like using a hunting decoy, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not going to just make something up in your head and hope it works. You're going to go off the real life situation. Mm. That's good. Hey, well, if, if you're good, I'd love to go into some rapid fire. We could talk about permit all day, but let's do some rapid fire. All right. So my first question is, I know that you fish a lot of tournaments. There's a lot we could unpack there, but for you, why do you, why do you find yourself so drawn to tournament fishing? Honestly, uh, it's the uh, my want to get better 
I think is uh, what drives me to like the tournament so much because uh, I'm definitely not the best guide in these mm-hmm. tournaments. You know, I'm, I'm one of the young guys still. And, uh, you know, I'm competing against the guys that I grew up, you know, that were legends to me. And uh, just to be able to go out with them and to try to compete against them is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, numbers are always thrown around. You always hear guys say, oh, we caught six today. We caught eight today. We caught two today. Um, the one thing that I like about tournaments is that everybody has the same conditions. So what's exciting to me is that you can hand somebody basically a pile of stuff and say, okay, what can you make out of this? Mm. And at the end of the day, whoever is going to, you know, think the hardest and is going to come out on top. And mm. that's what I love about it. You know, at the end of the day, when I go into a tournament, I'm going to give it everything that I have. If I lose, that's okay. If I win, phenomenal. But the fact that I'm going out there and I'm competing against these guys and they don't have the textbook story, perfect weather day, or maybe they do. But in my mind, that's what separates people from storytelling and, you know, actual skill Mm -hmm. is when everybody has the same tides, the same conditions, whether it's a shitty hand they're dealt or a great hand, who's going to capitalize on that? And, um, that's what drives me for it. You know, I I love, I love the competitiveness of it. Uh, I love the camaraderie too, because the people that are in these tournaments are some of the best in the world. Mm. And people who like permit fishing also like talking about permit fishing. So it's just fun. It's a good chance to get Mm. to catch up with all the guides that I never get to see, you know, besides on the water every day. Mm. And, uh, who doesn't like some friendly competition? (laughs) Yeah. So kind of related to that too, like I know that uh, you're kind of similar to me and that you've recently been drawn into wanting to get more involved in photography. What about photography really kind of captivated your attention and and how is that kind of playing out in your guiding? Um, Honestly, I really, really liked how hard it was. Um, You know, I was very fortunate enough to do uh, a few different TV shows with uh, some really talented photographers and they kind of gave me a glimpse into it. And there's just so much going on all the time. And to me, it's so similar to trying to figure out permit. You know, it's that never ending. There's always, you know, you always have different lighting or just different scenarios and trying to have that creative mind. I think it just kind of pushes the envelope. And, uh, you know, for me as somebody who spends 300 to 320 days a year guiding on the water, it's really exciting for me to give me something new to try and something new to master and to try to get better at. And, uh, also, you know, just, I I love it. You know, it's cool. And my clients really, really appreciate the photos and the videos, you know, they Mm -hmm. save up for five years or one year. And they get to go home and show their kids and wives, you know, what they were doing. And then if you have a magazine quality shot, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them hang them up. I mean, that's, that's part of the memory that gets to stick with you for the rest of your life. And uh, I love that. I like making people happy. And, uh, you know, it keeps me mentally interested at the same time. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's helpful. You know, you were talking about guiding over 300 days a year. And you spend a lot of time on the water. You know, is there any physical slash health tips that you could share that would just help people feel better on the water? Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fitness nut. Uh, I think that, uh, one thing that's always been super fortunate for me and helped given me an advantage is I work out a lot. 
Um, I think that strength, you know, at the end of the day, when you're been on the water for eight hours already, and you now have to pull into a 20 mile an hour east wind because the sun's now in order for you to see the sun's, you know, at your back. So you had to pull a straight into the wind. And, uh, time after time I've watched the other guide boats around me drop like flies because they don't have the strength or energy to push into the wind. Hmm. Um, and I think that's been a really huge factor for me in being able to really just tough it out. And honestly, I just get fucking mad at the boat. Sometimes I'm like, no, like <laughs> we're getting there, you know, and just, just keep thinking, okay, just 24 feet at a time, just keep mm-hmm. pushing, just, you know, and, uh, that's another, uh, thing that, uh, I definitely know that I'm a dad because the amount of times on a flat that I started singing in my head, just keep pulling, pulling, <laughs> pulling. I hope it's so, in your uh, head. Yeah. I hope. Oh yeah. No, no people. Heads. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. I, I mean, I already get enough weird looks. I don't, I don't need my clients <laughs> hearing that stuff, but, um, what no, man, workouts, I like, what do they look like? I mean, it's a little bit of everything, you know, I got really into powerlifting for a little bit, but I'm a really small frame guy. So powerlifting, you know, long, long and lanky. Um, my wife was a, a personal trainer coach. So, you know, I have a lot of help from her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I typically just do, I do a little bit of everything, you know, I like, I like deadlifts. I like pull-ups, you know, I like doing a lot of back, you know, bench press, mm-hmm. all the other, you know, little tiny, uh, muscles that go along with those, obviously go way mm-hmm. to more detail. But uh, I would say, honestly, like one of the huge, you know, and any person who's into sports or fitness is going to tell you that 80% of that comes in the kitchen. You know, for me, uh, my clients always think I'm crazy every day. But, uh, you know, one of the things that me and my wife do is my food is literally weighed out in grams every single day. I know exactly how many carbs, how much protein, how much fat. I know everything that I'm intaking. And if you think about it, you're trying to take a high performance car, right? Mm-hmm. or your boat, for example, you take and you put in fuel that has water in it or any other pollutants, your motor's going to run like shit. Mm. Your body's a machine at the end of the day. So I want to put in the highest possible octane I can, and I want my body to perform at the best. And uh, I've noticed a, a huge difference since I've started doing that with my food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to have to drink two, three energy drinks a day. Now I just have my coffee in the morning and I'm good all day long. Every time I start getting, a, I eat about every two hours. Mm-hmm. So, uh, as soon as I start feeling a little fatigued, I'll, you know, hop down real quick, eat my next meal and, uh, keep on going. Hmm. No, that's helpful. My next question is outside of time on the water, off the water, what has shaped you the most as a guide? You know, um, I would say off the water. I mean, it's still is kind of dealing with the water. Um, in fact, of I mean, I would say fitness honestly is like the one thing that's helped shape me just because mm-hmm. of because being more physically fit. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, I also am part of one of the board members of Lower Keys Guides Association. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really made me feel that I need to hold myself to a higher standard on the water mm-hmm. as far as etiquette and also just taking care of our ecosystem. You know, um, although I'm only 28 and a lot of people don't look up to me as a role model and they probably shouldn't, um, you know, I would like to lead by example in the situations mm-hmm. of, uh, conservation down here and I have a lot to learn and I can do, a, I need to do a lot more, but, you know, I try to pick up every single 
piece of plastic water bottle that I, or garbage bag or anything I see in the water, I stop back and go get it. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I'm definitely a believer of the little things make a difference. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whether that's me donating my time to, you know, BTT, IGFA, Cabins for Clean Water, um, you know, I'm not a person who makes a lot of money, so I don't have the financial stability to donate to those organizations. But Mm -hmm. one thing I can do is donate my time as a guide and help Mm -hmm. them raise money that way. And I think it's really important for every single guide to be proactive for their section of water and do whatever it takes, no matter how small or how big to uh, be a part of the conservation. I think Mm -hmm. it's huge. One of the things you kind of alluded to earlier was, you know, one of the things that's tough about the Keys is it's it's tight quarters. There's a lot of guides going there. It's a, it's a destination for a lot of out of, you know, out of state guides or at least out of the area guides coming in travel guides. When you think about just kind of big no-nos with either young guides or new guides or whatever, what are like in your opinion the big no-nos of of being a guide when it comes to relating to others? Um, you know, obviously etiquette is going to be the number one. Um, but that covers so many different things. Um, one of the biggest things that upsets, you know, me as far as other guides as well is when a new guide comes down here and starts guiding right away. Um, we have a very delicate fishery that takes years to understand and not only just for the fish themselves and to be able to respect the fish and approach flats the correct way and not to mess up things, but also just not to mess up other people's livelihoods. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's a lot of guides that come down here and they're like, oh yeah, I want a guide. They move down here and they're bringing down their trout clients or wherever they're from. You know, they could be saltwater. It doesn't have to be freshwater. And, you know, they're coming down here, not knowing the fishery, not knowing where to find the fish. But then now these clients of theirs are down here and are paying the exact same rate that they would pay uh, a guide like myself or guides have been doing this their entire lives like John O'Hearn, Doug Kilpatrick, you know, and these guys, they're paying the same rate and they're going out with somebody who might have been down here for two weeks. That doesn't seem very fair to me. So you now have a domino effect that's going to happen with that. Your, those clients are probably not going to come back here. They're probably going to have a terrible experience. They're not going to catch any fish. They're not going to see the Florida Keys the way they should. And to go further than that, that guy that was out there that day with those clients, I can guarantee you he's probably cutting people off. He's burning flats and doing a bunch of other stuff that he shouldn't be doing, which is affecting other people's day, like you know these guides that are legendary, you know, and their clients are going to have a bad experience. Mm. So there's so much more involved in it than people think. Um, the correct way to do it is to come down here, you know, get a job at the fly shop or a bar if you have to. Like you can you make a hell of a living down here. There's so many jobs. Um, and just learn the water for two or three years. There's a young kid coming up down here that me and my brother – have uh, kind of taken in and like I can't even take claim for it because the kid's such a hard worker. Um, started fly fishing with my brother when he was 13. And uh, basically when he was 18, said, you know, my dream is to be a saltwater guide. How do I do it? And we told him, you know, and we got it. We're able to get him a job at the local fly shop down here. And this kid, his name's Max Hamlin. Um, he's a 
he was a part-time guide up at uh, Henry's Fork Anglers, and he came down here the other half of the year just to study. I mean, this kid literally is on the water every single day. Like, he works, you know, a 12 to 6 shift at the fly shop. He's out fishing from sunrise till 1130 mm-hmm. every day. And he stays out of everybody's way, but he's learned the etiquette of down here. He knows all the guides down here. He knows how things work. He knows the... We don't have the crazy seniority like you hear up in like Apalachicola and stuff like that in the Panhandle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I truly believe that everybody has the right to be a guide here, but you need to respect the fishery and the other guides that are in that area. And uh, Max is going to be one of the top guides here in the next 10 years. With, there's no question in my mind. No, that's that's helpful and encouraging to hear for sure. Uh, my last My last question for you is, you know, it's kind of in a similar vein, but if you could go back to yourself you know, you're turning 18, you're getting geared up to, you know, start your, your career. What advice would you give yourself? Um, you know, I wish I would have respect the fish a little bit more. Um, you know, one big problem that I think I made, uh, a lot was mishandling of fish. Uh, you know, for me back then, there was a lot of ego involved and I really felt like I had something to prove. And, you know, I took a lot of fish for pictures, you know, for Instagram or, you know, just to let my clients take a thousand photos of, you know, each single bonefish that they caught. You know, I mean, I always kept the fish in the water and stuff. You know, I never abused them that way. But, you know, typically now, like on my charters, you know, if we catch a bonefish and, you know, it's under four pounds. You know, I say, hey, like, let's get one photo real quick, you know, in the water. Don't lift them out. You know, snap a quick pick. Now for the rest of the day. If we catch any other fish that are in that similar size range, we're not taking photos. I'm like, look, you guys, you already got a photo. Let's just let's use a D hooker. Let this fish go quickly. You know, it's going to help the fish pop. And people are all about it. People want, they mm-hmm. want this to survive. It's what they're passionate about too. Um, you know, and if they get one that's much bigger then hell yeah, let's take a quick photo. You know, mm-hmm. it's just small things like that. Uh, I wish I would have gotten away from using the plastic bottles a lot sooner and switched to the non, you know, uh, to the metal jugs. I think that makes a big difference. You know, each guide goes through, you know, 30 bottles on average a day, you know, when it's hot down here. And you do that times 300. It's, it's a lot of plastic. It's un- unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish that uh, I would have, I mean, I got involved in tournaments right away, but I definitely wish I would have understood them more. You know, I did a lot of tournaments where I didn't respect the amount of uh, work that a lot of other people were putting in. And, uh, you know, just in the fact that I would, I didn't take them as seriously, you mm-hmm. know, um, there's nothing worse than being in a tournament and having somebody that has absolutely worked their ass off and some guy gets lucky, mm-hmm. you know, and they admit it, you know, you might have a guy that has put in 200 days a year, just out, an angler, you know I mean? Mm-hmm. Really spent thousands and thousands of dollars. And then some Joe Schmo you know, his first time fishing saltwater got lucky and won the tournament. And then, you know, when the guy goes to congratulate him, you know, Joe Schmo is going to be like, oh, yeah, I got lucky. <laughs> you know, or, oh, yeah, I'm just here to drink and party. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I see that a lot in the tournaments that, uh, you know, some of these guys are like, oh, I'm just here to drink and have fun. It's like, well, you know, I mean, you're kind of insulting the people that are really trying their hard. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, to me, it's, it's almost a cop out. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. Everybody's in this to have fun, but, you know, uh, respect the other people. Uh, I think another really important thing is that 
Uh, I was lucky enough to be taught in tournaments that don't matter what you place, you show up for the award banquet. Mm. Um, I think that is one of the biggest signs of a character, in my opinion, is you see a lot of these tournaments where half the field doesn't show up uh, for the award banquets, but you mm-hmm. can bet your ass if they won, they would be there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, show respect for your fellow anglers and guides. Yeah, that's really good. I just remembered a story, too, that you told me earlier that I, I'd love to get on here. You were telling me about a crazy shot the other day with Nathaniel. Could you just kind of give me the rundown of that story? Yeah. Because that was a great yeah. story. So, absolutely. So, it was a little while ago, but I was fishing this flat with my buddy uh, Nathaniel, who owns the angling company. And he is by far, I think, the best permanent angler alive that I've ever seen or heard of. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some other ones out there, but just the way that he processes, his mind processes everything is un- unbelievable. And uh, this story, I think, really helps uh, exploit that. So we're coming down this edge, real big fish coming at us, you know, and he makes probably a 50-foot shot, you know, tailing fish, perfect, fish eats right away. Soon as he comes tight, the fish, like, jolt i mean it was like a tnt charge went off behind <laughs> this thing head comes out of the water and just wow. rooster tails across the water straight at the bow of the boat and typically when stuff like this happens game over mm. and i just automatically in the back i'm just like all right it's done mm. well before i i could even blink or even get words out of my mouth to say anything nat automatically knew that he wasn't going to be able to strip fast enough to stay tight to that fish so he reared back like he was going to make a cast and then punched the line as hard as he could forward and pass the fish and then put his rod tip down in the water. And so what that does is now that fly line is creating drag in the water enough to keep that fly in place in the fish's mouth. Mm-hmm. And he was able to pinch that and reel up his slack as a fish came to get tight and we landed it. And I was just in awe. I mean, like my, I, I couldn't even, I was watching it happen and it took me the entire time to process what he was doing. When he first mm-hmm. did it, I was like, was he just like saying, fuck it? And like trying to like <laughs> cast it. Yeah. And as soon as he put his rod tip down in the water, I was like, oh my God, no way. But I mean, just that reaction time, you know, and that's mm-hmm. we were earlier, we were talking about, uh, you know, people putting in the work. Nat's caught, you know, well over 250 permit on fly and, uh, you know, spends, you know, a, a lot of time on the bow uh, chasing these fish and puts the work in with all the other thought process behind it. And so mm-hmm. when situations like this happen, he knows what to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's really what makes uh, a talented angler versus somebody that gets lucky. Man, that's a great story, man. Thanks so much for hanging out today. And I look forward to doing another podcast down the road and, and hopefully getting on the water, man. But I really appreciate this time today. Absolutely, man. You know, uh, definitely would love to do another one because, like I said, I never stop learning, and I'm sure by the time the next one rolls around, I'll know a lot more than I do now. Well, thank you. This has been great, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective.
brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.